please turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardcover Bible underneath the chair in front of you. And Psalm 2 is on page 472. verse 7, um, but I'll go ahead and read all of Psalm 2. So go ahead and follow along as I read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have an opportunity to hear your word. Thank you for your word, and we pray and ask that you would um, that you would speak to us, and you would help us to be attentive to listen to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, like I said, I'm going to be focusing on verse seven, um, but just for context, let me give you a quick overview of Psalm two, uh, which I just read. Um, if you look back down at your Bible, verse one to three. Um, I'm going to title this Stanza of the Rebellion. Um, you see that the kings and nations are plotting to overthrow God and his anointed one. And then in verse 4 to 6, um, I'll call this stanza God's response. Um, God responds with laughter, with ridicule, um, and with anger. And in verse 7 to 9, um, this stanza I'll title God's Decree. God identifies a king and promises a kingdom. And in verse 10 to 12, um, this stanza I'll call the king's instruction. Um, the author of the psalm calls on those kings to serve God with awe and to pay homage to the king. Uh, the main goal of our text for tonight is recognize the king. And why should we recognize the king? Um, for two reasons. He's a true king and he's the ultimate king. So we should recognize the king because he's a true king. And we can see that in um, the first uh, line of verse 7. Again, at the beginning of Psalm 2, the nations are plotting rebellion against God. And in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, God responds in anger and he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. 
Then verse 7, which is where our focus will be, the author identifies who that king is. He starts by saying, I will declare the Lord's decree. So what is a decree? A decree is an official order issued by a leader or a government that becomes the law. Um, in today's terms, you might think of it as maybe a presidential order um, issued by whoever's in the White House, but um, it's not entirely the same. Um, back in the day of kings and queens, um, when they issued a decree, it would be law because they were the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch all together. Um, so notice that it's an official decree from, um, from someone with authority. Also notice that the author is declaring this decree. A decree needs to be announced or declared so that the ruler's decision or command can be made known, can be followed or carried out by the people, the subjects. And lastly, notice whose decree it is. Notice that it is the Lord's decree, capital L-O-D-R. Yahweh, the personal name of God, the ruler of the universe. No one can impose him, so this decree can't be negated. But also, God is faithful and true to his word. So whatever he says, he will hold, he will hold to it. So we know that this king is a true king because he has been installed by Yahweh. So again, our main goal is to recognize the king, and for two reasons. Um, he's a true king, that was our first reason. Our second reason, he's the ultimate king, and we see that in the rest of verse 7. So look down again at verse 7. It says, He, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to me, the psalmist, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Which sounds like the psalmist is the king that was referred to in verse 6. So who's the psalmist or who's the author of Psalm 2? To answer that question, we're going to have to look in Acts. Um, so keep your finger in Psalm and flip over to Acts 4, verse 23. As we're turning there, um, just for a little bit of context, the passage that we're about to read, just before what we're about to read, um, the Apostle Peter and John were questioned and threatened by the Jewish leadership to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Christ. And then, in verse 23, it says, After they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they, the Jewish believers, heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. The psalm being quoted in verse 25 to 26 of Acts 3 is verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 2. If you flip back to Psalms, you can see um, part of this psalm being quoted there. And the people who, uh, the people credit, or the Jewish believers credit um, the author of the psalm as, uh, as David, God's servant. Their father, David, God's servant. Now, they couldn't all have had fathers named David. 
um, and they couldn't all have had the same father, um, biological father, so they were probably referring to King David. So David, King David, is the psalmist who is declaring Yahweh's decree, identifying himself as the king God has installed. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and note again what God says, though. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. There's an establishment of a covenant relationship here between God and David. If you don't know what a covenant relationship is, consider this. Um, let me give you an analogy. Let's say um, I need to get a haircut, um, which my wife did say I do. But let's say I usually go to a certain barber, uh, but that day they're really busy, so I decided to try going to a barber next door to my house instead. And the new barber is cheaper, cuts my hair better, and there's no wait time. So I decide I'm going to change barbers, which is fine because my relationship with my barber at its core is a consumer relationship. I'm paying him for a service or a product that he's giving me. But what if, say, I take my son, Zechariah, to the park, and I notice there's another boy who runs a little better, who's a little more resilient when he falls down, and most importantly, he's cuter. Can I just go and switch sons? No! Because my relationship with my son is a covenant relationship. My commitment to him is the basis of our relationship. So God here has a covenant relationship with David. But what's the significance of this covenant relationship? If we look at verse 8 to 9, we see a promise that's still part of this decree that God made, and it's made to David. As part of his decree, God promises to make the nations his inheritance, and the ends of this and the ends of the earth, his possession. David will break them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. That's what it says in verse 8 and 9. Essentially, because of this covenant relationship, David will have an inheritance and will rule over and conquer all other nations. Now, God did give David victory on the battlefield when he fought against other nations. But at the time of his death, he didn't have the ends of the earth under his possession. So was God unfaithful to keeping his word? Let's go back to what God says in verse 7, line 2. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Does this sound familiar? Where else in the Bible has God declared someone as his son? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven declared, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Remember, when God establishes his covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promises that there will be a descendant from David's line, whose throne and kingdom will be established forever. So while this verse is referring to King David, he is a foreshadow of King Jesus, who according to Revelation 19 is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has established a new covenant for his people. He will rule over all the nations and his kingdom will last forever and ever. So this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 
So let me pause here and adjust the main goal for us slightly. So before our main goal was recognize the king. Uh, but I want to tweak that a little bit to say recognize Jesus as king. Why? Because he is a true king, affirmed and installed by God, the ruler of the universe. And he is the ultimate king. Jesus is the promised king from God's covenant with David. And his kingdom has no equal and has no end. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us here this evening, thank you for being here. The question I have for you is, who is your king? Or maybe it's not a person, but something. What rules over your life? Who or what do you serve, find refuge in, pledge your allegiance to? The sad news is, whoever or whatever it is, if it's not King Jesus, it will disappoint. It'll either not be powerful enough, not wise enough, or doesn't care for your good enough to sustain you through life in this broken world. The bad news is we are all sinners. We have all thought and acted on the impulse that we deserve to be king of our own lives. That we don't need God. We ought to be equal to God. Just like the kings in the, at the beginning of Psalm 2. That's a rebellion. And that rebellion is sin. The worst news is nothing in this world can shield you, a sinner, from the wrath of God who is holy and just and will judge everyone for their rebellion against him. Here's the good news, though. While God is holy and just and must judge everyone for their sin, he is also loving, compassionate, and full of mercy and grace. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross Jesus died the death that we deserved and took on the wrath of God on our behalf. He paid for our sins. On the third day, Jesus conquered sin and death and rose from the grave, and he's alive. So if you pledge your allegiance to him, if you repent from your sins, turn to Jesus, and make him the king of your life, on judgment day, his blood can shed, shield you from the wrath of God, and you will be clothed with his righteousness. This is the good news that all true Christians believe. So, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, do you want to recognize Jesus as King? If you have any questions or if you want to talk about it more, feel free to come talk to me after. For the rest of us, living life in a broken, sinful world means that there will always be something competing for Jesus' throne as King of our lives. Here are some ways that may be helpful uh, to help us recognize Jesus as king. If we look in verse 11, remember for verses 10 to 12, this is some instruction for the kings who were rebelling against the Lord. Verse 11 says, So serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. So serve and praise the Lord with awe. Seek to obey God's commands with a happy heart. It reflects the kind of king you serve, one whose commands are not burdensome. Pray and ask God to help you see more of how awesome and amazing he is. If you, have, um, if you think about God and you just draw a blank, you can't think of anything awesome about him, pray and ask him to help you see how amazing and how awesome he is. Uh, something that 
I've found helpful at times is to write out a prayer of praise um, and use it to help you meditate on who God is and what he has done for you. In verse 12, pay, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. So pledge your allegiance to him, not only with your mouth, but with your life. Go all out against sin. Don't make space for something that seeks to take Jesus' throne. Shine light on your sin by confessing to other brothers and sisters in Christ so they can help spur you on in your fight. Live a life of repentance. Lean on Christ and his work on the cross, trusting in him for salvation rather than our own goodness or other remedies that the world might offer. Also in verse 12, notice that the author David is warning the kings that they need to pledge allegiance or the sun will be angry and they will perish. So warn others of the coming judgment. Help them not only to see the blessing of having Jesus as king, but also the danger of not aligning themselves with Christ. Share the gospel with non-believers. The good news, but also the bad news, that judgment is coming. If you're not a member of a church, become a faithful member of a local church where you can take responsibility for each other's discipleship. So you can warn and guard each other from straying or making a wreck of your faith. And lastly, at the end of verse 12, all who take refuge in him are happy. So take refuge in Jesus our King. With Jesus as our King, we can find refuge in the promises that we have as God's people. And just to name a few, um, God promised salvation for all who believe in Christ. God promised to finish the work that he started in us. God promised that all things will work together for our good. And Jesus promised that he will prepare a place for us and come back for us to bring us to him and be with him forever. So recognize Jesus as king because he is a true king and the ultimate king. Let's pray.